As our reading is taken from Exodus chapter 34, page 93 in the Church Bibles. Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Do not make any idols. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, for seven days eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. The first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb. If you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall labour, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the ploughing season and harvest, you must rest. Celebrate the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. 
Three times a year, all your men are to appear before the Sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory, and no one will cover your land when you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord your God. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast, and do not let any of the sacrifice from the Passover festival remain until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands that the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please keep the passage open in front of you. And uh, if you look on the notice sheet, you'll see on the back uh, there are some headings there. And there's space if you want to make notes, uh, feel free to do so. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word, that you are a speaking God. And we pray that you would help us to be humble before you, ready to listen, and ready to be changed by your word and to be obedient to it. Amen. Well, what kind of relationship does God want with us? I wonder if you could liken the relationship between God and people to a relationship between people, if you could liken it between the two, um, what would it be like? Uh, Maybe you're new, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not even sure there is a God, but if there is, what, what kind of relationship does he want with mankind? Maybe you think of him as being a bit like the emergency services, that maybe you get in touch with him if there's a crisis, but you don't really want to bother him the rest of the time. Or maybe you view God like a shopkeeper, you know, you'll you'll go for what he can give you, um, but you don't really want to expect him to be involved in the rest of your life, just as you wouldn't expect a shopkeeper to be. Or maybe it's like a friendship where, uh, where, well, maybe it's a friendship, but maybe the the friend lives the other side of the world. Uh, You keep in touch, there's a kind of closeness, but there's a distance there as well. Or maybe you view God, think God is like a kindly uncle or aunt who is only ever warm and kind but you don't see them that often 
Well, none of those are actually the way that God relates to people or the way that he wants to relate to people. What human relationship most closely matches that of the way that God wants to relate to us, wants to relate to people? Well, there are many descriptions in the Bible, including parent and child, although that isn't the one that we've got in this chapter. But there is this other recurring theme that goes through the Bible, how God relates to people, and it's the one we will focus on in this chapter. Notice, would you, if you've got the passage open in front of you, on page 94, what it says in verse 27. So Moses has been up the mountain, spent time with God, and as he comes down, at the end of it, God says this to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, write write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. I've made a covenant It's a covenant relationship. Now, the closest relationship that we have, humanly speaking, that is a covenant relationship would be that of marriage. A marriage being uh, something that is both legally binding, but also an exclusive relationship of love. And that is what we see in Exodus 34. That God says the relationship that he has with people is to be like a marriage relationship. And in Exodus 34, we see that explained and we see that committed to. What's the context? The context of this is, uh, Moses, as we're told at the beginning of the chapter, is heading back up the mountain. He is told by God to chisel out two stone tablets, like the first ones. You see, there had been stone tablets before. Moses had been with the Lord and the Lord had written on those tablets the Ten Commandments. And those tablets are known as the stones or the tablets of the covenant. The covenant relationship that God was making between himself and his people. This was a symbol of the commitment, a bit like a wedding ring. These uh, these tablets represented uh, this covenant relationship. But Israel had been unfaithful. They had worshipped a golden calf unfaithful to the Lord and therefore Moses had smashed the tablets a bit like a husband or wife discovering their spouse has been unfaithful taking off the wedding ring and throwing it away saying the covenant has been broken and it was very quick that it was broken and the question would have been can this relationship between God and his people can it be restored And thankfully the Lord says, yes, it can be restored. And so he says to Moses, make two new tablets and bring them up the mountain. The covenant was going to be remade, the relationship re-established. And we're told Moses went up the mountain and the Lord again descended on the mountain. We've seen that earlier in Exodus. And as promised... Uh, Moses, as promised to Moses in the previous chapter, the Lord passes before Moses. An incredible moment. Mo- Moses has asked to see God's glory. And God says, well, you can't see it and live, so I, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock. And I'll put my hand over you and then you'll see the back of me as I go past. And Moses now in chapter 34 actually experiences this. 
But it's interesting, isn't it, that actually in the passage, there is not much said about what Moses saw. Moses doesn't actually give a description of what he saw, but he tells us what God said. Yet again, as we've seen earlier in Exodus, it is the word of God which takes precedence. Not the visual, but the, the, the auditory. Not, uh, not what Moses sees, but what Moses hears is primary. God is a God of his word. And our first point in this chapter, as we see God re-establishing this covenant relationship, this marriage-like relationship with Moses and the people, the first point is this. God is faithful. There's a whole load more than that, but God is certainly faithful. As God passes in front of Moses, he declares, it says, his name, the Lord. But in the Bible, someone's name is not just the word, it is all that they are their character. And so when God passes in front of Moses, he says, the Lord, that's his name, I am who I am, and then gives a description of himself. And it's a description of how he relates to people. So you see it in verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, and see God's character. He is compassionate. That is, he is drawn out to those who are in need. His love is drawn to them, those who are suffering. We've seen that in the book of Exodus. He is gracious, it says. That is, he pours out his love to those who don't deserve it. Notice in these first two words, he says he is loving towards those who are in need and those who don't deserve it. Maybe you feel like that today. Maybe you're particularly aware of your need or the need of others. God is compassionate. Maybe you're aware of your lack of worthiness to come before the Lord. The Lord's love comes out to you as one who is gracious. It says he is slow to anger. Interesting, isn't it, that people sometimes view the Lord God as being one who is angry. I wonder if you've felt that in the past. Maybe particularly as people read the Old Testament, they think of God as that way. Although, actually, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same in the Old Testament as the New Testament. But sometimes people view God in the Old Testament as being one who is just on a trigger, on a hair trigger to be angry. Like a wounded animal that, that any provocation and he will come out biting. Well, God says that is not the way he is. He is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And the word for love there is the word hesed, which is covenant love. That is like a husband or wife faithfully pouring out love towards their spouse. So is God towards his people. And he does this for thousands, it says. Far and wide, many people he receive, who he pours out his love towards. And he is forgiving. And it lists, doesn't it? I mean, different ways of doing bad things. He says, he's forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. 
In other words, all kinds of wrongdoing, whether unintentional or deliberate, he is a forgiving God. I wonder whether this description of God that God gives of himself matches your view of God. If it, if it doesn't, then we don't actually have in mind the God of the Bible. This is who God is. Loving and faithful. And at the beginning of this chapter, he is declaring this. He is a loving, passionate, compassionate, faithful God. And yet, second half of verse 7, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God won't leave the guilty unpunished. God holds us responsible for our actions and not just as individuals but as families too. But this description of God can raise a problem for us, can't it? They can raise what seems to be a contradiction. Did you see it there? How can God be both one who forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin, and yet also leaves the guilty un- does not leave the guilty unpunished? That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Which is it, God? Do you forgive or do you not leave the guilty unpunished? It looks like you can't do both. I mean, this looks like a spectacular U-turn, doesn't it? Uh, Even politicians take a bit longer to do a U-turn than this. I mean, this is within the space of two sentences. And yet, actually, it isn't a contradiction. It is a tension, but it's not actually a contradiction. And we discover that as we go through the Bible. I mean, it feels like this. there's just a tension in the heart of God, in the core of his being. He's forgiving, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Forgiving and just, how can he be both? And the tension is only relieved hundreds of years later at the cross of Jesus. Because when Jesus died on the cross, there wonderfully, God did something that meant he could be both forgiving and just. Because on the cross, Jesus took our punishment for us. If we will let him. See, all of our wrongs will be punished. We can either face that punishment ourselves or Jesus takes it at the cross. As it says in Romans, Paul, speaking about the cross, says that at the cross God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. There we go. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Do you see? That's saying the tension is relieved. It's taken hundreds of years from God declaring this on Mount Sinai. And now Paul says, look, here it is. God can be just and the one who justifies, forgives people because of the cross of Jesus. Which is yet another demonstration of his great love for us that God would deal with this tension. So here is God stating his faithfulness, his love, his justice, declaring his character to Moses. God is faithful, he is loving, compassionate, just.
And then in verse 10 onwards, God tells the people what is required of them. In verse 10, he says, Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you. And he tells them what he will do for them. Now, we don't have time to go into all the verses, I'm afraid, I'm sorry. It would take far too long. Sometimes when you're preparing a sermon series, you portion out the passages and you think, yeah, okay. The problem is you do the portioning out of the passages before you've done the study. And then when you come to do the study, you realize each one, each individual passage that you've picked could itself be a sermon series. But there we go. So I'm not going to try and give you a sermon series this morning. Uh, but we will therefore not be able to cover every single bit of this chapter. But it is a wonderful chapter. Having, dis- having declared who he is, God then says what he wants from his people. Here is what they are to do. And this is where we have the second point. God's people must be faithful. In a wedding ceremony, if you've been to a wedding, maybe you are actively involved in it. In the ceremony, both husband and wife declare their faithfulness to the other, don't they? Bride and groom say the same things. The bride is asked, will you love him, comfort him, honour and protect him, and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? That is the covenant, isn't it? That's part of the covenant. To be faithful to that one person, forsaking all others. In other words, I'm not going to go off with others. I'm going to be faithful to you. And God says that is what he wants from his people. He's going to be faithful to them. They need to be faithful to him. And that is where a lot of the laws then that you get in this chapter, because there are various laws that are picked out uh, from what's already been said, actually. God has given many of these laws already that Robin read for us. But the ones that are picked out here are particularly to do with the Israelites being faithful to the Lord. And there are two aspects of this. There's a negative side and a positive side, and we'll just quickly see both. The negative side is that they must do everything necessary to make sure they aren't unfaithful. They must do everything necessary to make sure they aren't unfaithful, that they don't go off with other gods. So you will have noticed that. God says, I'm going to bring you into the land. And he says to them twice... Don't make a treaty with those in the land. So verse 12, be careful not to make a treaty with those in the land. Now the word treaty there is covenant. So he says, I'm making a covenant with you. You don't make a covenant with those other people of the land. Don't make a treaty with them. And he repeats it later on, verse 15. Be careful not to make a treaty with them, a covenant with them. Why not? Because they will draw the Israelites away to worship other gods. They will draw them away. And you will go and worship other gods, God is saying. You'll prostitute yourself to other gods. It's interesting, isn't it, that actually he says the people of the land, they will prostitute themselves to other gods. It's interesting, that's true of people who aren't just God's people. They prostitute themselves when they worship other gods. But he's saying you'll join in with them if you make a treaty with them. So don't do it. Do everything necessary to make sure you aren't going to be unfaithful. Don't trust yourself that you can be tempted by, that you can go along with this and you'll be safe. No, no, don't do it. Don't make the treaty. And he reiterates verse 17, do not make idols. 
And that would have burnt, wouldn't it, when Moses heard that, don't make idols, because that is just what the people have done. They made an idol. Now, just to apply that for us, we need to learn from this too, don't we? Just on the negative side, we need to ask whether there are steps, if you're a Christian, are there steps you need to take to remove those things that might draw you away from the Lord God? Now, there are several ways you might need to apply this, mightn't there? Are you aware of things? Maybe there are things particularly on your mind at the moment. You think, yeah, actually, I must remove those things. I mustn't do those things because they will draw me away from the Lord. Notice for the Israelites, what's highlighted here, maybe something particularly for us just to focus on for a moment, is their relationships with other people. He's saying, actually, don't trust yourself. That If you make this treaty with these people of the land, you will be drawn away. Don't trust yourself. Maybe we need to think, well, who are the people we hang out with most? Who are our closest friends? Now, it's not saying, obviously, we can't sort of shut ourselves off from the world. We're not to do that. You've got to be amongst non-Christians. Probably if you go to work or if you're you know, amongst your street, you can't just get rid of the non-Christians, obviously, and you shouldn't. God brought them there so that you can uh, witness to them. There's purpose behind that, isn't there? But we do need to be careful, don't we? Who are our closest friends? Do you have close Christian friends? Because if we surround ourselves with non-Christians, if we just have non-Christian friends, we will be drawn away. You think, ah, I wouldn't be. You know, don't trust yourself on this. We need to make sure that we have close Christian friends. For the Israelites too, it related to who they married, who they had romantic relationships with. So too for us. Don't go out with someone who isn't a Christian. It's not wise. People think, oh, well, I, can, I can get away with it. I'll, I'll be all right. It is not wise. It is not a good thing to do. And don't marry someone who isn't a Christian. It was one of the applications for the Israelites, wasn't it? Now, of course, those who are married to non-Christians should, of course, be fully committed to their spouses, be devoted to them, love them. But they will confirm it, it, doesn't, it does make things harder being married to someone who is not worshipping the Lord. So what do you need to do to ensure you don't drift away from God? That's the negative. The positive, there are things that we should do to nurture our love for the Lord. And that's where you get the list of festivals here. God's saying, you know, celebrate these festivals. The festival of unleavened bread and so on as you go through the chapter. And the Sabbaths and the festival of weeks. And he's saying, you know, celebrate these things. It should be times of joy for you. Come before the Lord. Bring gifts to the Lord. It should be a time of rejoicing. And those festivals are are to be a bit like um, wedding anniversaries where you remember the relationship and the covenant relationship and, and all that the Lord has done for you. Because in these festivals, they will remember that God rescued them from Egypt. And how he did that, that's part of the, the, the Passover festival of unleavened bread. And, and, and also God's provision for them. Uh, that They are to bring the first fruits of their harvest to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord has given them to them. The Lord has blessed them with them. And so they need to come before the Lord. Celebrate. And so too for us. 
How positively are you nurturing that relationship with the Lord, your love for the Lord? Well, you've done well if you're here. (laughs) Being with God's people on a Sunday is part of that, isn't it? Singing, celebrating God's gracious love, sitting under his word, celebrating communion together. We're not doing that today, but you did it last week. But you need to do that. If you're watching online, obviously you can't do that at home. You need to be here in person to do that, to celebrate communion together, because that is the feast that we have together where we celebrate what God has done for us at the cross so there's the gathering together and then there's also our own daily times with the Lord do you take time day by day to be with the Lord and maybe going to Christian festivals as well that's why we as a family and others like going to things like Word Alive because through them you grow in your love for the Lord So uh, the Lord pledges his faithfulness to his people and says to his people, they need to be faithful to him. And we need to be faithful to the Lord. We need to think of what are the things we need to stop doing or the the sort of negative things to say, I'm going to make sure I'm not going to be unfaithful to the Lord. And how can we be positive, make sure we're nurturing our love for the Lord? Be faithful. And then there's the last point. Which is this relationship will make you more and more glorious. I wonder if you've noticed some people, um, you're aware who they've been with. If you spend time with them, you, you know, actually, if they've, gone, if they've been with other, a particular group of people, they come back and maybe they talk a bit like that group. And you can tell who they've been with by the way they speak. If they've been with one particular person, they start using phrases that that person says. You know that kind of thing? Where you notice that with a person? They spend time with that person. They, they kind of sound a bit like them. Well, actually, the relationship with the Lord, this covenant relationship, does something amazing. It does take a, just a little bit of explaining, though. Um, towards the end of the chapter, verse 29 onwards, you see that Moses came down the mountain uh, and had a glowing face. And you may have thought, what on earth is this on about? That Moses came down the mountain, having spent time with the Lord. Verse 29, it says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant, because he'd spoken with the Lord. He'd spoken with the Lord, been with the Lord, came down the mountain, and his face was glowing. So much so that people were frightened to come to him, And after he told them what the Lord had said, he would put a veil over his face so that people weren't frightened by his face. Not that it was an ugly face, but it was a radiant face. And it's curious, isn't it? Being in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of the glory of the Lord, started to make Moses radiate with glory himself. You think, well, what's the application for us? Is there an application for us? Do you want to glow? That would be lovely if you did when you left Emmanuel Church, wouldn't it, this morning? You went out with a glow on your face. People go, what happened to you this morning? You say, I went to Emmanuel Church. That's great. Well, actually, there is an application for us. Paul picks up an application. Because he says, actually, this does happen to us. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul picks up on this um, incident. Uh, And I would encourage you to read more of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 because Paul actually says a lot about this incident and relates it now to us. And he says, well, you, you thought that was glorious when Moses was up the mountain. What we have is even more glorious in the gospel of Jesus. And then he says this, and we all talking of Christians, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, do you see the imagery that Paul is using there? He's saying we are a bit like Moses, actually, with unveiled faces. Just as Moses came down the mountain glowing because he'd been in the presence of the Lord, Paul is saying, so too, Christians are being transformed in this life, not just in the life to come, in this life with ever-increasing glory. This is a work of God's Spirit in believers. You might think, well, how does that happen? Do we need to go to Mount Sinai? Go up there? See the glory? Come down? Be glowing? Thankfully, no. How do we see God's glory such that we are transformed day by day and made more like his his glory? Well, like I say, read more of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, but let me just go to one more verse. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. When someone becomes a Christian, this is what happens. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. There's a lot going on in that verse. Where does the light shine in? It shines into our hearts. So it's not a kind of physical glory like Moses saw sort of visibly, you know, saw it in front of him like that. No, this is something that happens in hearts. That God opens hearts, shines light into hearts. So that what? So that, uh, in the verse, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. So that we can behold God's glory. How do we see it? Where do we see it? In the face of Christ, we see it in Jesus as we hear of him, as we read of him, as we hear the gospel, the good news of what Jesus came and did for us when he came and died on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so we could have all our wrongdoing dealt with. As we hear those things, it's not a visible glory that sort of dazzles us and sort of suddenly we get this physical glow, but it is a light shining into our hearts as God's Spirit opens our hearts and we see in Christ the face of God. We see God's glory in Christ. And that is how God transforms us in this covenant relationship. To be more and more glorious. It isn't, though, a passive thing. If you're a Christian, it's not a passive thing. It's not that you just wake up the next day and someone says to you, you're glowing more, aren't you? No, it's not passive like that. It happens as we spend more time 
in God's presence as we spend time in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, getting to know Jesus better in his word with his people as we are transformed bit by bit. I wonder if you know people or have known people in the past who were particularly godly people. And they, they had a kind of radiance about them. I can think of people uh, who are like that. Can you think of people like that? Be aware, that didn't happen by accident. It is part of the work of God's spirit that he made them like that. And I don't know about you, but those kind of people, do you, do you know the kind of person when, when you pray with them, it's like you've come into a into their home you know so with some people when you pray with them it can feel like you're both coming into a slightly stranger's house together it's like slightly uncomfortable it's kind of you know, and yet with other people when you pray with them it's like you've entered into a very familiar place with them because it's just what they do and the way they speak to the Lord, they clearly, it's like they broke off a conversation to do something else and now you've joined them to come back into God's presence with them. Do you know that kind of thing? And don't you long to be more like that? Well, it doesn't happen by accident. It happens as we spend more time with the Lord. And as we do... He transforms us, like Moses, to radiate more and more of his glory. So here is the relationship the Lord wants with his people. It is not in any way a distant, far-off relationship. It is not a relationship of sneering or, or mere judgment on us. Some people go around in life thinking that is what God wants or who God is. We do know God is just. But he is a faithful God. And he calls us to be faithful to him. And draws us into close personal relationship so that we can be transformed. I wonder, have you come to God yet for this relationship? It's what being a Christian is, to come to God, forgiven through Jesus, brought into this relationship to be transformed. And if you have come in, will you spend time with Jesus to be transformed more and more to reflect his glory? I'm just going to give us a moment of quiet. Maybe you want to look back over the passage. Maybe you want to take some moments with the Lord yourself, praying over what we've just looked at. Just a few moments of quiet. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you reveal yourself to be a faithful God. A compassionate God, gracious, loving and just and Father you call us to come and be faithful to you help us Father to put away those things which would take us away from you to take radical steps so we won't be drawn away from you and 
Help us to nurture that relationship of love with you. And we praise you for your promise that by your spirit at work, you will transform your people to be more and more radiating your glory. Help us therefore to spend time with you that we too might reflect your glory more and more. Amen.